As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. On This American Economy, Lindsay Piegza joins us, Chief Economist at Stiefel. Lindsay, are we near recession? I, I think we are teetering towards a recession. Now, of course, the fourth quarter number does look pretty good, particularly against the backdrop of an even stronger rise in the third quarter. But when we look at what's happening with the consumer, which is the backbone of the U.S. economy, we are seeing a clear loss of momentum. And without the consumer happy and healthy out in the marketplace, we simply cannot expect to maintain positive growth, let alone more robust growth, similar to what we saw this morning. So I do think that as the yeah. Fed can continues to raise rates, savings are depleted, real income remains negative, fiscal support fades, there is going to be an additional burden on the consumer that leads us into or uh, near negative right. growth. Lindsay, long ago and far away, under the religion of the Kool-Aid of Peter Lynch of Fidelity, domestic final sales reigned supreme. Michael McKee just mentioned that that trend, that tendency there, away from the back and forth of imports, exports, and the rest— is a pretty moldy number. Do you have a belief here that a slowdown in domestic final sales brings on the reality of recession? It certainly does, because just like when we look at inflation, we strip out the more volatile components of food and energy. That's what we're doing when we look at that real final sales number to uh, domestic purchasers. We're stripping out the volatility of inventory. We're stripping out the volatility of trade. And what we see is a more clear, defined downward trajectory of growth, slowing from up near 4% to down near 1% at the end of the year. Again, still, there was enough resilience in the U.S. economy to maintain positive Positive momentum in Q4. But the bigger question is, are we able to maintain that momentum as we turn the calendar page? And most of the data suggests that we do not. Lindsay, do you think that the market is wrong because we are seeing consumer stocks do really well as they look forward? I think the market is severely underappreciating the amount of tightening that the Fed is going to have to embark on in order to reinstate price stability and thus underappreciating the amount of pressure that is going to be put on consumers and businesses and the overall economy. When do you start to see the data to actually prove that before thinking, well, maybe the Fed is going to be on the side. You do see inflation coming down and we're going to get that soft landing that everybody's talking about. 
I, I think we're already seeing it in the data. When we look at retail sales, negative in November, negative in December, consumer spending still positive. But when we look at overall goods and services, that too is trending down. Production now in, uh, in contractionary territory, housing taking a sizable hit. There are multiple, right. multiple data points that are suggesting the U.S. economy is not going to be able to maintain this momentum in the new year. And Lindsay, thank you so much. Lindsay Piegs, it was Stiefel. Right to it now as we speak to Liz Ann Saunders about the reality of the equity markets. We take a broader view with Philip Campariel, Portfolio Manager, J.P. Morgan Asset Manager this morning. I love, love, love your notes, single sentences, <laughs> observations, weaving it together. And your major weave is the epsilon in the back of the equation. Uncertainty is going to be less uncertain yep. and we're going to get to certainty. When does Jay Powell have certainty? He has it right now, Tom. I, I, and I think the, the, the key to our view is, first of all, good riddance to 2022, because as an asset allocator, Tom, what Powell and his friends did last year was create really, really tough ways to manage risk. As an asset allocator, we love that if stocks go down, you better have bonds as your defense on the other side. And the most risky balance funds last year were the more conservative ones. And when do we ever say that, right? So the 13% drawdown on the Barclays Ag, the Bloomberg aggregate, I'm sorry, was, was, the, was the worst year that we've ever had. Now, going forward, you asked me the question, when does Powell have certainty? It's right now, because they're going 25 basis points on February 1st. And we haven't been able to say that for a well, long time. Well, the chart that Lisa showed there on PCE inflation, we see that. Is it 830, Lisa? That's at 830. We see that. Yep. I'm sorry, it quarter. magnificently shows the one-off of this pandemic. Yep. Does J.P. Morgan, across all your platforms, suggest we are beyond the pandemic? Well, we're beyond the pandemic highs in inflation for sure, right? So that's why we're going to this step down in the aggressive in the aggressive tightening sense. Tom, last time I was here, it was at the end of you know the at the end of the third quarter, and I told you we had a record high in our fund in cash. That is not the case anymore. We are putting money to work all over the world. We only have two percent in cash right now. We're stopping short of saying that we're going to see an earnings acceleration or or a, reignite, a reignition of the cycle, but we are putting money to work in the U.S. specifically. We have a twenty percent allocation to investment grade corporate bonds. That's the most we've ever had in our portfolio. And we have about a 9% relative value trade between U.S. stocks and non-U.S. stocks. And we, we haven't had that since 2017, Tom. Like, mm -hmm. this is about being active and taking advantage of opportunities again after last year. Investment grade bonds in the U.S. Yeah. have gained about 4% so far this year. Yeah. That is akin to what we've seen in the S&P 500. At what point yeah. do you know the trade is up, that the gains are in, that basically you've been on it, you've ridden a good ride, it's over? Yeah, so so, Lisa, we are we are looking for it more for carry. What does that mean? It means a yield story. If we were really optimistic about the U.S., we would be in the U.S. equity market because we have that option as a balanced portfolio manager rather than an investment grade credit. So the credit story, Lisa, is to get us more yield than our index. What I'd say where we're trying to get total return is the non-U.S. equity equity market. So the way that we would go back into U.S. equity would be, okay, core PCE is falling like a rock. The federal funds rate doesn't need to be at 5% anymore. And what the Fed is 
saying for 2024 is going to happen in the back half of this year. That is not what we're saying. Does that mean that in the U.S., when people do start going back, <clears throat> energy is going to be the leadership, continue to uh, uh, sort of a redux of last year, because that is also a yield story. That is also a dividend play. Yeah. So um, I think if people were to go back into the U.S. equity market, it wouldn't be in those yield plays. It would be in the total return beta stories, you know, the, the growth stories that were plagued last year when interest rates moving higher. So when people continue to go back into the U.S. equity market, I think it'll be at a time when growth stocks are back. Because we're not, again, we're not talking about a reacceleration of growth. We're talking about a more subdued growth environment. And, and in, that, in that environment, I think the big cap tech stocks can do pretty well. You talk about core PCE dropping mm -hmm. like a stone. Yep. And there was a mantra over the past decade, don't fight the Fed. Yep. This year, it's fight the Fed because the Fed is wrong. <laughs> Do you buy that? They're not wrong. I think they go another 50 basis points and then they go on hold, right? So but that, they cut rates by the end of this year, which is what we're you're not, seeing in yeah, futures. Yeah, so we're not willing to say that yet, Lisa. I think that's a little premature. And I think Jerome Powell, to your question earlier, Tom, <clears> I think Jerome Powell may push back on that with open mouth operations on February 1st, which could be a risk, which again, Lisa, is, is about why we're more <clears> in the IG credit side than in U.S. equity. The opportunity for equity is overseas. There's right a now. constant theme of the people that we have conversation with that the market is out front of the Fed. Mm -hmm. What are J.P. Morgan clients actually doing? Are they, are they telling you they want to be in the market, or are they, as a generalization, scared stiff? Tom, every conversation that I'm having right now is about, should I be looking outside the U.S.? And it's like the twilight it's the zone. It's like the twilight zone because we've been asking people to do that for a long time. And right now, I think the opportunity is, listen, as Yogi Berra said, you'd rather be lucky than good. And in Europe, they have a three standard. Was Yogi Berra professor at Fordham? <laughs> <laughs> when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Carry on. Exactly. So Europe had a, Tom, Europe had a three standard deviation warm winter. This is the warmest winter they've had in decades. Well, you mentioned that. And, you know, we just did with Damien Sassar, EM, commodities, yeah. copper, Chilean pesos out. It's a three standard deviation move. Yeah. Negative two standard deviations, strong dollar, weak Chilean peso, mm -hmm. bombing through to a plus one. Does EM pause here or is there an urgency to get on board EM and international? Yeah. So, listen, EM is the most volatile asset class on the planet, right, that we deal with. So, I think the ways that you manage risk in EM, we're just buying calls on the index. So if it goes up like it did this year, we're going up with the market. But if the market tanks, then we're going, we have a, we have a limited downside with our premium. So we're buying calls on the index. That's the way that we're controlling for near-term volatility. But remember, in 2021, when everybody was talking about how great the equity market was doing, EM got crushed in okay. 2021. So there's still, even with the rally, a, a longer-term valuation uh, component. I'm running out of time. I want to talk to you about Toyota and investment in Japan. You got to come back and do that, you know. <laughs> but, you know, bring your Japanese team. Toyota, Lisa, Toyota down 31% in U.S. dollar terms from the beginning of last year, like 12 months trailing. We can talk about automakers yeah, coming up. Phil um, Camparelli. Things are flying because thank the Bank you. of Japan is even moving. So okay. things are flying. Phil Camparelli, thank you so much. J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. What are you about this morning? <laughs> Basilios Benakis, head of European FX Strategist City, with us in London. I'm going to break you while you're talking. You do that. Facilios, let's talk about FX. And let's talk about the difference right now between people constructive on the US economy and people who are less so. The people who are less so are clinging to sub-50 PMIs. The people who are constructive are looking at jobless claims data, which comes out in about two hours, 30 minutes, which is in and around 200,000. Which one is it? Well, I think as it frequently is the situation, we're somewhere in between. There is a slowing in the US economy, and, and that's, defi that's definitely visible in the manufacturing sector, especially as you mentioned in the soft survey data. But then again, you, one has to contrast this with an extremely tight and a historically tight labor market. So therefore, uh, this is not going to be an easy one uh, for the Fed. I mean, currently the market is pricing 4.9%, let's call it 5% terminal rate. I think we could reprice a bit higher, um, but to the extent that we only reprice modestly higher, I don't think that, say, 25 basis points of repricing higher is going to be neither here nor there for the dollar, because I think we've switched regime. The, the, the Fed has become a far maturing theme. We're getting close to the peak, and now the driving seat is global growth expectations. And this has been, you know, reignited by the Chinese reopening. And this is what is driving the markets. If you, if you approach this statistically, you can actually say that during the first, the first three quarters of 2022, U.S. yields explained around 90% of the dollar variation. Right now, they explain about 15%. Whereas if you go back and you look at underlying fundamentals surveys, they are now in the lead. And that's because expectations are being rated higher. So I'm not trading rates anymore, I'm trading copper. Is that a fair way of putting it? I think, well, to a certain extent, yes. I think uh, there's definitely going to be some increased demand for uh, commodities. I mean, it will vary from um, uh, one commodity to another. But, but the bottom line is that uh, we are talking about a country who has been shut from the rest of the world for, about, for more than 1,000 days. Um, of course, there was uh, trade going on. But right now, I think there is going to be some significant aspects of pent-up demand that are going to start showing, and therefore Chinese imports and their for upside pressure on commodities is going to manifest. This is the third year of pandemic economics. That's what Tom right. Lisa and I have been talking yeah. about now for the last couple of weeks. Every single year of those three years, particularly the last two, we've got wrong. The consensus view has been terribly off course. Can you tell me what you think we're underpricing right now with regards to China reopening? Well, I, I, could, I could see it both ways. I don't think right now, if you look in the currency market, uh, that we have reached levels uh, that price in fully a relatively smooth uh, Chinese reopening. For example, if I look at the Euro-dollar market, uh, our estimates of fair value are between 115 to 117, where 109, very important level, I suspect, uh, if 
sorry, when more than if we break it, uh, we're going to see a, a lot of real money demand and demand from corporates as well is going to push it higher. And historically, what you tend to see is that when you are in periods of um, a significant undervaluation, and then you start correct towards fair value, you don't just correct there and you sit there, you typically overshoot it. So um, my point here is that I think we still have some way to, to go in order to reprice um, uh, the Chinese reopening. How much of an inflationary impulse do we import from China into the United States? This is, uh, um, uh, in China, I, I think uh, China is going to be much more relevant for Europe uh, compared to, for example, the, the US. But I think this is uh, an element about the upside pressure on commodity price and therefore inflation that has come up very frequently with clients. And my only observation to this is that uh, what is driving inflation is extremely important. Uh, so um, in 2021 and parts of 2022, it was supply-side driven. So you had muted domestic activity and you had inflation squeezing an already damaged economy. But this time around, if inflation is being driven by the demand side of the economy, by Chinese imports, then it will still create challenges for uh, central banks, but it's not the same gameplay. It's a more traditional way of dealing with inflation. You have increased demand and therefore you have some upside pressures on, on prices. And that prompts central bank response, but not to the extent that it will squeeze uh, incomes as it did uh, during the course of 2020. Which should lead to a stronger currency in Europe. So euro dollar right now 109. Can you run me through some numbers, what you're thinking about over the next three, six months? Right. So I think 109 is, as I said before, is very important. I think potentially next week is going to be a catalyst for the euro to break convincingly uh, higher. Uh, and I say this because I expect the ECB to be hawkish. Uh, and I think the Fed will deliver 25 basis points, although there are some focus risks uh, into that uh, meeting as well. Um, and if we break that, it will become particularly painful for uh, real money accounts and corporates who have not participated um, in, in the big move to chase the currency higher. And I think uh, then, you know, we could converge to 115 and even potentially higher, absent, of course, black swans. I mean, there are a lot of risks into that scenario, right? Vasilios, this was great. Vasilios Janakis there. A 109, looking for a break of that potentially, Tom, going into the ECB next week. Helene Becker is with us, senior research analyst at Cowan, barely describes it. She and Kai Von Rumer owned the franchise for decades at Cowan, and she provides leadership uh, forward. Helene, I've got an answer. I use as a proxy New York to Paris. But even that price is down from the insanity of six months or eight months ago. It's still stupid money, but it's less stupid. Is international starting to rationalize in the aviation business? We're, we're seeing, um, Tom, very strong international business travel. Um, less so maybe on the, the, the um, leisure, but I suspect leisure travel will pick up um, mid February and then increase through the summer months. The demand is still very strong. And the further we get away from 2020, <clears throat> the more comfortable people feel about yeah. going outside the country. Elaine, how much is this a story of international travel just to compensate for what we saw versus a wholesale return to the way it used to be? Yeah, I think um, so, so. I think 
there are two things going on here. The first is with respect to supply chain, our um, supply chain issues, right, from from Boeing and, and Airbus um, being delayed on delivering aircraft. So you don't have a lot of capacity coming in, which props up price. But then on, on international business travel, um, after all these Zoom calls and people taking calls at midnight or one in the morning, I did a call with a client earlier this week, and it was midnight in his time zone. I don't think that can continue indefinitely. And I think you're going to see an increase in international business travel this year. And especially, you know, as more people feel comfortable traveling and COVID becomes, people continue to think of it as being more endemic. So, Helene, what is the new model? Is it basically having half the plane as business travel and the rest sort of sandwiched into the back as you try <laughs> to get some sort of profitability uh, overseas and then domestic travel is just the ongoing mess that it has been? Yeah. So, I think, um, to your point, I think the front of the cabin is going to get bigger in the sense of business travel. That's that cabin, and then you're going to get a bigger premium economy. And when you're thinking about long haul, it's the old lean back seats, the reclining seats versus the lie flats. Um, and then you're going to get a smaller section in main cabin. And what we're seeing in terms of pricing, to Tom's earlier point, is the prices that would have been in main cabin um before pre-pandemic are seem to be a little lower, but prices in premium economy seem to be equal to what business travel prices used to be. And business seems to be more like the old first class pricing. So I feel like the price points are going up and um <laughs> and the mix is shifting, me. which is good. Helene, you're killing me. True story. <laughs> My father died on a 12-hour notice. I had to get on a plane, and I flew economy for the first time since time began. The seat was so small, I flew, Helene, to Portland, Oregon nonstop sitting on the edge of my seat <laughs> well, but the then, whole way. Okay, it's a so, joke. So then there's this issue, right? I've travel economy all the time and there's the economy and then there's the economy where you have to buy a soda for your kids if you want them to have any sort of a drink on a four-hour flight. I'm just wondering, Helene, for the discounters, whether it's JetBlue, which was traditionally uh, the front of that or Frontier, which I was talking about, what's the future for them if the prospects of domestic travel seem to be diminishing with the economic cycle? Yeah. So, so Tom, I'm sorry about your dad first, but the other thing in terms of the pro the the outlook for for those guys, um, they're going to slow their growth. They're going to have no choice. They're not able. It's it's not the the hiring part. It's the retention part that's an issue. And then the <clears throat> aircraft, they have to keep growing, right. um, and they can't get the aircraft. So, I I think there's always going to be a market for a deep discounter, right? There's a market if you think about hotel change. There's a market for Ritz, and there's a market for Motel 6. Um, and so I think you're always going to have that differential. And I think people will, right. who've gotten used to traveling will continue to want to travel because that's, um, that's what, right. what they do um, versus buying lots and lots of things that they don't really need anymore. So I think we're, 
I think those guys will be okay. I just think the growth will slow. And I think yeah. American Delta and United are going to see very strong international growth and growth in business this year. And and I would right. just pivot as I'm thinking about investments to those names. Uh, Helene Becker with us, folks, on radio and television. Thrilled to have you here on a big, big earnings day. Uh, she is with uh, Cowan. Helene, just for the record, I keep a track of the business to economy ratio of a given flight from L.A. It was nine to one, which I never thought I'd see nine dollars of business ticket. For one dollar of economy, it's down to six point three to one uh, right now. Is my busy con uh, ratio? Uh, that's uh, Newark to to uh, LAX, and everybody else has their other ratios. With that said, what is the domestic constraint for Kirby, for Bastion, and the rest? Is is there is there constraint gates? Is it new airports like the magnificent new LaGuardia? What's their biggest headache? to get us back to some kind of normal 36 months from now. Yeah. So the biggest one is infrastructure issues and the fact that at the busiest airports, there's just no space physically to put more aircraft and we're not building more runways. You know, look at you, look at Newark Airport. Um, <laughs> the two parallel runways are too close together to allow for simultaneous operations on bad weather days. So that airport winds up taking extensive delays and, and weather isn't blue sky every day. You, you have rain as you did yesterday and operations per hour decline. And then infrastructure issues, the government doesn't want to talk about this, but they did not train air traffic controllers for 18 months during the pandemic. And you've got a lot of controllers retiring. And, and I get very passionate about this because the right. airlines have a hard time talking about it because obviously they're right. they're they're dependent on the government for ATC. Right. But the FAA should handle safety and security and 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 a private corporation should handle air traffic right. control and you'd you'd get more investment and we'd be in the twenty first yeah. century instead of in the, in the 20th 18th century. century with the Wright brothers yeah, exactly. in North Carolina. Uh, Helene, one final question. John from London emails in and says, what's your single best buy? What's your single best buy right now uh, at Cowan? Yeah, um, United, UAL is our top pick for 2023. Um, it outperformed in 2022, and we think because of their international exposure, it will outperform again in 2023. Helene Becker, thank you so much. Terrific brief there on a day of earnings. She is with Cowan. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.